welcome to the Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, the one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? I am doing great, Chris. How are you? I'm, getting all ready to travel. I'm getting ready. We're head, The family is heading to Florida. Ay, ay, ay. Florida in the summer. It's going to be Pensacola. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great time. We're going to do some ministry, see some family. It's going to be a good time. Swimming. Swimming in the boating. ocean. I don't know about boating. Eating fish. 100% eating fish. What will be your favorite fish? Well, you know, hold on one second. Here we go. Welcome in. Welcome in. My favorite fish, Steve, hands down, will be my father-in-law's baked salmon that he does in his um, air fryer. Have you ever used an air fryer never, before? Never. Oh, it's amazing. I Honestly, uh Kudos to my mother-in-law, because whenever I go over there, she knows exactly what I want. I love her casseroles. And I don't know what happened to my father-in-law, but he got a air fryer, and he's learned all these great recipes, and he just threw some salmon in there, put some, you know, sprinkles. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Came out, and I it was the best salmon I had ever had. So I'm hoping that he... He does that again. I don't think he listens to the Jew and Gentile podcast, <laughs> but if he does, we're well, we him. should ask our listeners 424-444-1948. Uh, maybe they have a fish recipe, Oh, uh, especially after my son-in-law last week in John 21, where he described Jesus having smoked fish for his <laughs> disciples. The resurrected Christ cooked smoked fish. I loved it. Hey, you know, our listeners have been... Texting us to 424-444-1948. Can I read some of the great Please comments? Please do. Uh, this comes from area code 260, which says, I'm catching up on the Jew and Gentile podcast, and I'm on episode 86. Whether or not you intend the podcast to be an in-depth Bible study, I have found it, along with other FOI resources, to be very helpful. And so he says, keep up the great work, and he ended with, I. So there you go. Here's another one for you, Steve. This comes from 408, area code 408. He wrote this, and it's actually a question for you that I think you could answer. He wrote, hi, Steve. I'm kind of curious if you ever gave your children the experiences of the Jewish festivals when you were raising them, or were you already a believer before they were born? It must have been meaningful for you to celebrate those Jewish traditions when you were young. Did you ever feel that you were depriving your children of the things you enjoyed? Oh, that, that's a good question. Uh, I was a believer before I got married. I married a Gentile, a Shiksa. We talked about that. Um, but we were equally yoked because we both believed in Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, Son of God, our Redeemer. And so there were many of the festivals, in fact, that we had kind of a Attention, Chris. When I first uh, was married, the idea of Christmas, celebrating Christmas with a Christmas tree and <laughs> the lights and all that was kind of difficult for me. And uh, Alice was very uh, understanding of that. And for the, probably the first four or five years of our mar marriage, we never had a tree. But uh, there was a, a man discipling me, and I met with him on a regular basis. And he said, you know, that's interesting that Alice uh, says, that's fine, no tree, We're realizing we don't know the actual birthday of Christ and the, tr the whole nine yards. And she said, but he said, but doesn't she light the candles with you for Hanukkah? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's in the intertestamental period. That's not in the Bible. And so I said, yeah, that, that's true. But it was a history thing. And anyway, all that to say, I said to myself and then talked with Alice and said, I'm sorry. You have your culture. I want the kids to experience your culture. They've experienced mine. So, yes, we've done, when the kids were young, we did <clears throat> Passover, Hanukkah. We didn't do Yom Kippur and fast because I believe and we believe that our sins are already paid for in Christ. But we expose them to their Jewish culture. And, in fact, if they listen to last week's uh, Jew and Gentile podcast, my daughter is now playing Mahjong. Yeah. <laughs> it's come full circle. <laughs> That's so, yes, there is the, the culture and the beauty of two different uh, backgrounds, my wife and myself, and we tried to impart those to the kids. Well, I think I've said this before, that when I came to your house as a teenager, it was the first time during the Christmas and Hanukkah se uh, season where there would be a menorah lighting and a Christmas tree lighting. Yep. 
all at the same time. 100%. Which I always appreciated, and sometimes you would always be kind enough to invite me into your family uh, you know, traditions there. Um, there was another question, too, Steve, that I thought we could talk about, and it had to do with the uh, issue of the promises that God made to Israel. This comes from area code 318. Uh, and they say, uh, the question comes in and it says this, at times in the Old Testament, God made promises to Israel, like in Deuteronomy 28, 12 through 14, where he promises to bless, uh, he promises to bless Israel as a nation uh, is one of many examples, he says. Can we place those same promises on ourselves, families, and even those we are, uh, even though we are Gentiles, or is this a contextual promise concerning how Israel is to behave in order to receive those blessings? That's a really good question, and one that, uh, depending on which Christian you talk to, they'll answer you differently. Yeah. But we believe that these promises were given to the nation of Israel, uh, that the first part of those promises in Deuteronomy 28 is how they will be blessed if they follow God, if they are obedient to his word, and then how they will be cursed. So, you have to take the whole package, and it's interesting when we talk about replacement theology, big word, secessionism, the idea, that's what Jewish people call it, the idea of, of where the church has now taken Israel and become Israel. Uh, I believe we can apply these in our life. You can apply a lot of scripture that's not written to you. Mm-hmm. This was written in the Torah to the Jewish people. Uh, but we can we can take from that. Uh, so no, I would say that contextually this belongs to Israel, the blessings and the curses, uh, and that as Christians we read those promises to Israel, we also, hey, we're, we're blessed when we're obedient. That's mm-hmm. a principle that's not limited to the Jewish people, but the promises that were given are specifically given to Israel. Uh, let's reverse it. The promises to the church today— are they given to the nation of Israel? Mm-hmm. I would say no. In fact, Chris, you and I have been going through the book of Revelation, and we realize that God has a separate plan for the nation of Israel, and it involves uh, his uh, plan to bring the nation to himself, that they'll recognize the Messiah. Uh, the church, the church has promised, hey, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You'll become part of a body comprised of Jew and Gentile alike, where the middle wall of partition has been broken. So there's promises given to the church that don't belong to Israel. There's promises given to Israel that don't belong to the church. There's promises given to the Gentiles that don't belong to the Jews or the church. Mm-hmm. Those are those nations God has a plan for. Israel, God has a plan for. So I think it's great that the person who asked the question knows that much about Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. Uh, lot, not a lot of people do, uh, but I think contextually we can make the argument they belong to Israel. And I think, a gr- again, a great example of why we believe in the distinction between Israel and the church, because this is a, uh, like you said, you can pull from it and see that obeying God is a uh, a theological theme that's found both for Jew and Gentile, for the church and for Israel, especially the Old Testament. But when it comes to Deuteronomy 28, that's actually called the land covenant. And the reason it's called the land covenant is because God says, if you obey my law, I'm going to bless you in the land. And it all has to do with Israel being in the land. And I still think that land covenant matters to Israel's ultimate fulfillment because of God's promise to Abraham. So yet it is specifically connected to Israel, but the theme of obedience uh, to God um, and his word and how he wants us to walk with him is uh, an, a theme that you can see throughout the scriptures. A hundred percent. And in fact, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because for people who've traveled to Israel and know the history, you could you could go back during the time of Mark Twain, when he was walking around that land, he'd wonder who wanted to be here. This It was desolate. It was dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so few people there. There are always people there, but very few. And all of a sudden, when, when, God, when the children of Israel, when Jewish people start coming back to the land, which they have starting in the late 1800s in mass, it's, it's like they have a green thumb. Well, green thumb. Yep. Uh, the land is blossoming, and it's not nearly what it's going to be in the millennial kingdom. But it, isn't it interesting that when God's chosen people, even in disobedience, 
as they are in that state now, coming back to the land, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful land in a desert. It's amazing. Uh, so listen, if you have questions that you'd like answered or you want to make a comment about the Jew and Gentile podcast, you can text us at Steve. 424-444-1948. Send us a text. We'd love to hear hey, from we you. Hey, we love to. I love these questions. I do too. They're Cr- great, aren't they? Hey, Chris, last week, my daughter made a plea for anybody wanting to play Mahjong, <laughs> and somebody texted you, right? That's right, from the St. Louis area. Somebody said, I want to join her club. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening out there in St. Louis. That's fantastic. All right, Steve, so uh, you have some interesting things that you wanted to bring up as we've been talking about uh, Jewish perspective on life after death. We had this article that we've been going through, uh, taking one at a time. We're probably not going to go through all of them, but for now, uh, what do Jewish people believe about life after death? And that Moment uh, magazine had several scholars of short little things that they write, and this one's called The Spirit's Presence, Chris, The Spirit's Presence. Years ago, people would say, oh, Jews don't believe in the afterlife. It may be true in the modern age, the whole world underwent an alienation from faith, and the Jews went along. That happens a lot. Mm -hmm. But if you go through the Bible, there's a fascinating variety of views. My father was a Hasidic rabbi and the son-in-law of a Kabbalist. I grew up hearing it talked about as in Fiddler on the Roof, which segues to my nephew who got us a Fiddler on the Roof lessons that we can learn. Yeah, you can show it right there there to our audience. Johnny McCauley, thank you very much. We're going to put it up in our Jewish and Gentile podcast room. Let me see this really quick. Tradition, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, drink Lachaim to life. Uh, There you go. All the stuff in there. So... He, this person saying, I grew up hearing talked about, as in Fiddler on the Roof, from heaven, they're all sitting there watching us, seeing what's going on downstairs, and hearing about the Rebbies at Auschwitz, who went to their deaths with such faith. When they were digging their own graves, they would say to their followers, it's all right, we're going to a better world beyond this one. Then I became a Bible scholar and encountered all the scientific criticism. In my book, I try to show that the idea of life Hereafter comes from the Bible, from Isaiah, and from Daniel. Chris, that's what you and I say. A hundred percent. We agree with him, a hundred percent. Who is its most famous proponent saying some some go to everlasting life and some going to everlasting damnation? Some Talmudic rabbis say that God can do anything, that if he can make a man from water, that is semen, then he'll do it again at the resurrection. Maimonides in the Middle Ages takes a more spiritual view of the afterlife. He says the righteous sit with crowns of glory on their heads and they look at God. Interesting in light of what we're studying in Revelation. Uh, In other literature, there's the belief in reviving the dead. And there are parallels to that in the Bible and the stories of Elijah and Elisha. Both of them revive a child. Some people think it is resuscitation, but I don't think so. I think it's meant to show that God resurrects. And in certain places, like in the cave of Machpelah, where the patriarchs are buried, for example, you really get the feeling that they might be alive in there, listening to what we have to say. Not everyone feels it. Maybe I'm just attuned to those things. This is from Lila Leah Bronner, the author of Journey to Heaven, Exploring Jewish Views of the afterlife. That's a good one. There's a lot of things. Isn't it interesting that... Well, I have to take note of that one, too, because Pastor Neil had texted me and said, uh, do you have any books on Jewish thoughts on afterlife? This would be a great (coughs) short uh, information for him, but she covers some things that we strongly agree in and other things we might disagree in. But the point is, I think she says, the text, the Bible text, the Old Testament text, uh, talks about resurrection. A hundred percent. And it's interesting. I like what she had talked about in there about the idea of God being the life giver, that God can take life and create it out of nothing. And that's been a theme that's popped up in um, in some of my studies recently. I actually read a book 
uh, by a professor um, from Harvard. Uh, it was called oh, from Harvard. Excuse oh. me, excuse me. But uh, it was uh, the Israel, the resurrection uh, of Israel, and it was talking about both resurrection and the importance of Israel. But it was saying the amazing thing is the theme of resurrection throughout the Old Testament. And a lot of scholars, and you probably know this, Steve, is that a lot of scholars, modern scholars who criticize the Bible go, oh, resurrection was something that came as a result of uh, uh, the Second Temple period. It was, it was created later on. Um, it, it was, it's not found in the Torah. And even the Sadducees believe that. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection because they didn't believe it was in the Torah. But uh, it's interesting because this theologian does a fantastic job of showing, no, God is the creator of life, and so he can create life out of nothing, even the dust of the earth. So the idea of even Isaac, the birth of Isaac, is just an absolute miracle of God taking a barren womb of nothingness and creating life in it. Oh, Sarah's not going to appreciate that. A barren womb of nothingness. Well, that's what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Poor Sarah. That was the way that it was being presented in the book, at least. Hi, <laughs> Sarah, it, Sarah, Sarah. She can take it up with him. But all I'm saying is it's the idea that God is the one who creates life and how you see that theme all throughout from the very beginning, even throughout the Old Testament, that resurrection is very much a part of the fact that God creates life. Hey, don't you think that Abraham knew that God could raise him up? Oh, 100%. Yes. Yep. So you're right. Even even with the barren womb of nothingness, <laughs> God is able to do anything. All right, we, we, have to, we have to remember that barren womb of nothingness. Boy, that is a mouthful. Uh, bye, bye, bye. All right, so anyway. Oh, <laughs> you sounded like a Rebbe there. Oh, bye, 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 bye. That's, that's Yiddish. You're becoming a Yiddish speaker. <laughs> Oi, my boy, my boy, that's what they do. Steve, I have to say, it's funny when people text in and everybody writes oi down. So maybe they'll do oi, my boy, my boy uh, now. Oh, that is classic <laughs> Eastern European Yiddish. I love it. All right, well, Steve, where are we at in the Bible We're now? actually in chapter 19, and we've already talked about, you know, we've gone through, before last week, we've gone through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven uh, vials or, mm -hmm. or bowls. And now we've come to the hallelujah in chapter 19. And we talked about that. And, and we talked about the marriage supper of the lamb as they're getting ready to do that. Uh, and now we're coming to, this is a great part, Chris. This is where the Messiah, the Mashiach, uh, is coming to the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe that he came the first time as a baby. We believe that he rose from the dead and that he walked amongst at least 500 witnesses, if not more. Uh, we believe that uh, he demonstrated who he is, and the disciples looked at him as he uh, rose, raptured, if you will, in front of them, and the angels said, hey, why are you, why are you looking up? He'll come back. Mm -hmm. And so we've been waiting uh, all through these seven years. This is around seven, almost seven years into this 70th week of Daniel, and Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, is coming back. And he's coming back, not as the Lamb of God, that we saw him, not as the Lamb of God, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, and all of the Old Testament prophets were pointing to this moment. You know, it's uh, something I learned as we were going, when I was in IJS in the Institute of Jewish Studies and going through Bible college and seminary, is you know that uh, when you're looking at the prophets, you know they're all kind of seeing this moment. Now, of course, it was broken up into two segments. It was his first coming and then his second coming. And there are instances of understanding his first coming, like Isaiah seven fourteen, which talks about his virgin birth. But then all of a sudden, you get to passages like Zechariah chapter twelve, which give us a bigger picture of his, and Zechariah fourteen, which give us a picture of his second coming. But that's not the prophets didn't necessarily see them in segmented moments. They saw them as one big coming of the Messiah. And so this is the moment where kind of all of these things begin to make sense, and all of them come together. All those prophecies of the Old Testament from the virgin birth all the way to his second coming all meet their fulfillment right here in this moment. And I'll, I'll even say this, Steve, we've always—it's always funny when people say, so are we living in the last days? People—I I get that a lot. And I tell them, hey, the moment Jesus ascended into heaven and resurrected— We've been living in the last days because 
to God, it's a it's it's even though he's sitting at the right hand, he's waiting for that moment to return. And so we're living in, in an era of time where we're waiting for him to come back and to establish his kingdom on earth. But it's always been since the moment he resurrected and ascended the last days. We're just waiting. hundred percent. But li- listen to this. Is a day as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. That's that's in Proverbs. It's in the New Testament. Well, hey, Jesus has been gone just a couple days. Yep. It's only a couple days. And so when, when we think of this, in fact, there's Christians, Bible-believing scholars, have different views about how this eschatological program plays out. And eschatology just means end times. It that's, means that's the right. last days. Yeah. That's right. Usually Study it's you usually days. it's me trying to explain the the theological words that you use this time. Oh, I feel like I was kind of smart. I, 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 that was one of my rare moments well, I where to, I had to be translated. Well, yesterday when we were on our meeting, which we have to share with our listeners, that this Thursday night we're going to have none other than Dr. Mordecai Kadar uh, on. Yeah, yeah, you t- <laughs> uh, hey, you got to tell them, this is sponsored by Equip, and we're bringing Dr. Mordecai Kadar. Uh, Chris, that guy knows so much <laughs> well and i said to steve steve's like I, I want you to run he says to me before we go on with dr kadar who is a bar Ilan university lecturer manages phds he's a he's a specialist in arabic studies he's israeli he's fluent arabic he's fluent he's the guy that goes on al jazeera network and argues for israel's point from an in an arabic language he's an arabic speaker when he was in the idf he was in intelligence listening to them translating he he knows colloquial. He knows perfect Arabic. He was he's the man. Well, all that to say, the reason I was chuckling when when Steve said, "Oh, look at you're the one that's you know talking, bringing me down from the word eschatology." Is Steve says, "Chris, I want you to lead the conversation with Doctor Kadar," and I said, "Yeah, but I want you there because Steve, you do have a way of taking like the big." things that people, you know, maybe not might not understand and bringing them down and asking good questions, um, which is more difficult to do. Oh, he was driving me crazy. <laughs> he gave so much information. <laughs> I, what, what were you feeling during that time? Ah, everybody was. <laughs> tell us, will you please tell no, us? No, he said we were going we're gonna to talk history, but it's going to be worthwhile for oh, you to come. It's fantastic. So FOI Equip sponsors this podcast. I can't believe we forgot to. Oi, boy, 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 boy. I can't <laughs> But this is perfect segue. We're talking about eschatology and the different uh, views and and all that and translating uh, big, big uh, theological words. Uh, Hey, the 1967 war is something that most Americans really don't know that much about. And that's what Dr. Mordecai Kadar is going to be talking about is the Six-Day War, because it happened 56 years ago in June in 1967. And so we're—hey, and how much does this cost? Oh, it's free, Steve. It's It's, free. It cost us, though, Chris— we gave it. We gave him an honorarium. Oh, we, didn't gave, we? we we gave him an honorarium because he deserves. And we it. don't mind saying that. That that's important for us to when somebody comes as a guest, we want to treat them. We're Hamish, right? We have our little cooler, as mm-hmm. Tom calls it, or we call it our fridge. We we want to treat people the right way and do the right kind of thing. So when we have a guest come, we want to make sure that they have an expertise that we hey thank. And he said it, he'll do anything. For us, and yep. in fact, tell them about his application. Yeah, you can actually download an app of his called Newsreel, which is N E W, like N E W S, like news. Newsreel, N E W S R E A L, uh, kind of smashing news and Israel together. And you can download an app and keep up with some great news happening in Israel. But I know he'll talk about that during the FOI. He Equip will, class. but we want to plug him as 100%. much as we can. And you can register for that class by going to foiequip.org. Now we're, we're we're putting all this stuff together. Which, by the way, if they stay tuned for our word, our Yiddish word of the day, it'll all we, we, make sense. It will all make sense. We're throwing all these different things in at the same time. It actually makes me want to rename our podcast <laughs> once we get to the Yiddish word of the day. That's right. That's right. But when when we uh, get here, we realize, Chris, you and I and Friends of Israel, we believe in a pre-trib, pre-millennial position. That is, we believe that the church is going to be taken up to meet Christ in the air. Uh, he'll take us out as his wrath is poured out uh, when the, after the rapture and when there's a signing of a covenant. 
Uh, and there's groups of Bible believers who hold to that. But there's also a group who hold to a mid-trib rapture, mm-hmm. uh, and they hold that when uh, Satan in, in, infiltrates the Antichrist permanently kicked out of heaven. That's the time that uh, his wrath is poured out, God's wrath, the great tribulation, as it's called in Revelation. And so there's some Christians who hold to that mid-trip. Then there's people who use this one uh, at the end and say, oh, the church is going up, and then boom, like a U-turn, as he's coming down, we're transformed, and boom, we're with him. So there's different views eschatologically thinking, study of last things. Mm -hmm. Either way, regardless of which view you hold, the bottom line, the most important thing, we all agree as Bible-believing Christians, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, is going to be true to the promises that he gave. He's coming back. Mm. And Chris, he's not coming back to New Jersey. Nope. He's he's never been to New Jersey. He's not coming to New Jersey. No, he's coming back to Jerusalem. and Not New York. Not New York. No corned beef. No pastrami. Nope. Nope. Not Rome. A lot of people, oh, he's coming to Rome. Nope. Not Rome. He's coming back. To Israel. That's why I, whenever I read the book of Acts and I do my devotions in Acts, I think a lot of people, when they read the the narrative of Acts, it almost seems like uh, God is moving away from Jerusalem, you know, because everything kind of starts in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, as you get to Acts chapter ten, Acts chapter eleven, twelve, and you move from Peter going to Cornelius, and then a Gentile, and then Paul begins his ministry, and now he's doing these mission, missionary journeys. It can almost seem like there's this arrow that is pointing away from Jerusalem as you continue to read through Acts. Uh, and I think that's it's one of the reasons why when you go to Rome today, uh, St. Peter's Basilica, I mean, it's like the headquarters of the Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you'd think it'd be in Jerusalem, but it's in Rome. Uh, because again, I think there's that mentality that the arrow is pointing out. When really, I don't see Acts as an arrow pointing out. I see Acts like a bullseye, and the centerpiece is Jerusalem. Jesus says, I'm coming back here to Jerusalem. And I think Paul went out into the Gentile world. He went as far as Rome, maybe even as far as Spain. He went out into the the Roman Empire to let the Gentiles know Jesus isn't coming back here. The king of kings is returning, and he's coming back, and he's pointing back to Jerusalem. That's why he Paul always returned to Jerusalem. He always made a presence in Jerusalem, because he knew the King of Kings was returning there. A hundred percent. And then you read the prophet Zechariah, and what does he say? We believe in the millennial kingdom. Uh, ten Gentiles, ten Gentiles will grab the clothing of a Jewish person. What Jewish person? I picture them holding onto this pants leg, and as he's <laughs> as they're going to Jerusalem, we want to go with you to worship the God of Israel in at the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, Steve finds it very annoying when I do that to him when he's trying to walk into work and I grab onto his feet. You know, uh, no. yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, we normally read the text. Uh, this is kind of a conglomeration of different things we put together. Why don't we read the text starting in verse 11? Yeah, no problem. And I'll start here because uh, actually, Steve, can we go back really quick to verse 9? Because I think we did our do <laughs> Live and be well. Start in verse 9. Well, I want I wanted to say that because we, we, we did our Yiddish word of the day last year or last week, and I think we missed the saying of why we did that one. But it comes from here in, uh, in Go right Revelation 19.9 says, Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Bon appetit. Okay, yep, that's right. Uh, and he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Now in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was, uh, b- before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an uh, iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh 
he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, Chris, I'm uh, from time to time, I've used this uh, commentary on Revelation from the Life Application Bible Commentary, and there's a really good uh, pass, uh, example here of trying to understand the mercy of God and the judgment of God. And as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've seen God's fury, God's wrath poured out, yet God is a God of love. And here's what he says, which I, I really appreciate. God's wrath exists alongside his mercy. In each generation, there must be balancing preaching and teaching about God's grace and his anger against sin. In Martin Luther's day, God had been presented as so wrathful that grace and forgiveness needed to be reemphasized and taught to the people. In our day, however, teaching about God's love and tolerance has become so predominant that God's anger seems to be mythical. Such a portrayal of God hardly warns people away from sin. Hmm. Balanced teaching is so important. We don't want people, some people think, oh, if you're born again, oh, you've got that black Bible and you're preaching hell and damnation. Well, it could be, depending on which Sunday you come to church. <laughs> but it could be that you're going to be preaching about the grace mm -hmm. and love of God. And the book of Revelation teaches both. Yep. Uh, and in order to understand grace and mercy, you have to understand wrath as well. And so the more we understand God's holiness and justice and uh, the demand that the earth, the very earth, is moaning to be brought back to where it was at the garden, and people violated in so many ways where evil seems to win, we cry out, there must be justice, there must be uh, some way to pay these people for their awful things, and yet at the same time, God's love, his mercy, his grace. And so as we've been going through this and now coming to this high point where Jesus Christ returns, he's coming <clears throat> with fire in his eyes. He's, he's coming to defeat those armies that have gathered around for this uh, battle, these series of battle, the campaign of Armageddon. And he's going to with fire in his eyes, judge the Antichrist, Satan's attack uh, on the truth and on Jesus Christ and those who hold to his name. This is a demonstration of the wrath of God and the mercy and love of God at the same time. You know, it's interesting to me, and maybe you've heard this before, but I always hear people go, oh, the God of the Old Testament is this God of anger and wrath and jealousy and he just is so angry all the time. But then you get to the New Testament, and it's God of love and grace. Oh, boy, read these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I think oftentimes people don't understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his character doesn't change, which means Jesus's character doesn't change. And Jesus did—he lived out the grace and mercy and compassion and kindness of God uh, as he walked and ministered with people and continues to do that even in my life to this very day. But then at the same time, he's still the same God that was at the burning bush. And so his character doesn't change. And yes, there is that component of God's holiness being so holy that to misstep his holiness, you could end up uh, facing his wrath. And so it's, it's, a, it's again, a double-edged sword of God's, of God's character, uh, but he doesn't change. He's not the God of the Old Testament angry God of the New Testament love, he's always been the same. I think you raise a very, very important point, and I think it's demonstrated here, and it will be. You know, in, in Zechariah it says, they will look upon him whom they've pierced. These are, these are people who have lived through the tribulation, period. These are people who have refused the uh, Antichrist uh, sign that they had to put on. Uh, these are people who have been obedient, but at the same time disobedient, mm. and they've survived. And they still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that uh, the, the idea of uh, a God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've held to them by rejecting Antichrist and saying, no, we're not going to take this mark at all, and we believe in one God. By the way, they rejected Jesus on the basis of that. Mm -hmm. But this group of Jewish people who rejected the Antichrist and live will look upon him 
whom they pierced, and the Bible says they'll mourn for him. Chris, they are going to be at the worst point in human history. There is no hope. Mankind is going to be destroyed. The earth is going to be destroyed. There is no hope. They're on, if you will, symbolically, their backs looking up, and he comes, Mm -hmm. and they recognize him. And the Bible says they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And if you combine Zechariah with the Apostle Paul, all Israel will be saved. Yep. There will be this blessed time when their eyes will be opened. Uh, as Paul described, the veils upon their eyes. Right now, my eyes were unveiled to the gospel as being true. Only God can open their eyes, and he, he does it now through the Spirit of God. He will do it then through the visible manifestation of the living God, Jesus Christ. And it's important, too, to know in the Old Testament, to be saved, oftentimes to be delivered, was both a physical deliverance for Israel and a spiritual deliverance, that the two would go hand in hand. And that's exactly what you see in this final moment as as the Jewish people are, are surrounded by the nations. Uh, the nations are coming in to not only wipe out the Jewish people, but to ultimately try to wipe out God, essentially. Uh, they're touching the apple of God's eye, and that's when Jesus returns. I'm pretty excited about this, Chris. This is pretty good. Uh, can, I, can I say another thing? If you notice, Jesus uh, or John in Revelation chapter 19 is talking a lot about the nations, that he's going to come and, uh, and, and, and not, I don't want to say destroy the nations, but he's going to bring them under his authority that's the point, the whole world, the, glo- the, the, the his creation. But it's interesting because that is an Old Testament concept, too, that I don't think most people think about, that God has always had the nations in mind. And I always think it's interesting that when, w- whenever you think about this tiny little country of Israel, and here in the Old Testament, remember, Israel is only the size of New Jersey, okay? And we're talking about even Israel from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And these kind of uh, uh, psalms, these messianic psalms, were so elaborate to talk about the the global reach of the Messiah's reign and rule. It almost would—it's almost unfathomable to think about the fact that something like Psalm 72 would talk about a Messiah that would come and rule over the nations— and to think that it's just this tiny little country, Israel, with this king, that this t- you know, it wasn't a big empire at all. And yet all of a sudden, this tiny little empire is going, we're going to rule over everything, and God's going to be the one to do it. And I thought I'd read Psalm 72 in light of, so- of Revelation 19, because Psalm 72, it's actually a Psalm of Solomon, but it's a messianic psalm. It says, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. And this is exactly what uh, Revelation 19 was talking about. Jesus coming and bringing justice, righteousness, and peace. May he judge your people in righteousness and your afflicted ones, ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people and his hills, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. And he goes on, and he talks about defending the poor, the needy, uh, defending those who can't help themselves. And it says, may he, the king, endure as long as the sun and as long as the moon through all generations. And listen to this. This is talking about the king of Israel all the way back from Solomon's day. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and may his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. Now, this is important because remember, on his thigh is written the name King of Kings. Where does that come from? Psalm 72. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him. It's amazing. All nations serve him. Psalm 72, written during the reign of Solomon, is pointing forward to Jesus when ultimately not a, the king won't just rule over Israel, Steve. It's the picture that from Israel will stream the Torah, the instruction of God to all the nations as the Messiah sits on his throne. Well, you know, Chris, you learn from Ezekiel uh, that the land mass that we talk about is so small when the king comes back, the kingdom is going to expand. Now, of course, he's king of kings and lord of lords over the whole earth, but Israel is going to get from the river Euphrates uh, or from the river uh, in Egypt to the river Euphrates. That covers a lot of land that 
Israel has never had, not under David, not under Solomon. They've never had. And uh, so, yes, there's going to be an expansion, and it's going to be the promises that were given to Israel will be amen and, to uh, them. And amen. It will happen. It's a big yes and amen. And so we're going to actually pick up on, uh, we'll pick up on Revelation 19 and 20 next week, uh, because we've got some news that we have to cover here, We Steve. do, Chris. Let me start off with this one that you gave to me. The Tower of David reopens after 50. Million dollars, so a lot of shekels, Chris. Well, can I say really quick, too, Steve? Um, two of these articles were given to us by one of our seven listeners, Alan Holtby in Canada. Alan, thank you very much. This was great. Alan is a dear, dear friend who always, uh, and I don't always get a chance to reply to him in email, but he's always uh, faithful to send interesting news articles. And thank you, Alan. Yes. So, after more than a decade, the article actually is uh, from Israel 365. After more than a decade of planning and three years of construction, multidisciplinary team of archaeologists, architects, curators, researchers, designers, and creatives. I don't. What's a creative? Just somebody who creates <laughs> creatives. The new tower. You're a create. You're the creative for this podcast. I don't know creatives. I, what do you do? I'm a creative. Well, you're the creative. Do you bring the creativity? Uh, I do all this nonsense here. Uh, you're the tech guy you're the and creative. the information guy. Anyway, the new Tower of David Jerusalem Museum opens to the public, and it did so uh, June first, Chris. Mm -hmm. And this article. Uh, talks about the Tower of uh, David, the ancient citadel, Jerusalem's iconic symbol located between the old and the new city, is uniquely placed to tell the story of Jerusalem, a city that has no equal in the world. And so, Chris, this all these renovations that they're doing, a sunken entrance pavilion at the Jaffa Gate, that was one. The thematic gallery that's going to be there, Innovations, engaging content, 12-meter multimedia wall. There's so much stuff here. I'm telling this you. Is, you're going to be there. there. You're gonna I'm going to be there, there in October. Yep. I want to see this place. We got to do a podcast while you're there. Maybe we'll do a podcast. That would be pretty <laughs> cool. Pretty cool. So, yeah, that's a big That's big news. Uh, you know, Israel has been updating Jerusalem big time, and it's been an amazing update where they're not only updating the infrastructure for Jerusalem, but they're also updating the um the uh, uh, archaeological sites as well. As Steve, they're digging in the new, you know, the pool of uh, Siloam. There's a whole dig going on there. It's just gonna. It's amazing what Jerusalem is is becoming over the years. This next one comes from Alan as well, and I thought it. The headline made me laugh because it has to do with, of course, the Netanyahu government, and it has to do <laughs> with the judicial it's reform. It's hilarious. And so it says opposition lawmaker Lieberman offers to join Netanyahu's coalition if the premier cuts ties with Orthodox and far-right <laughs> partners. That's the entire coalition government for Netanyahu. Hey, I got such a deal for you, BB. Yeah. Cut them, add me, but we won't have enough for a coalition. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> well, well, you got to read at the second page, Chris. I have an underline. Uh, open up your page. You read this. It's, it says it's about halfway down. Lieberman openly admitted okay. what? Lieberman openly admitted on Saturday that he still does not trust <laughs> Netanyahu. <laughs> you got to love Jewish politics. Yeah. Hey, I want to join you, but you know what? I don't I don't believe a word you, you say. <laughs> he quote, this says, it's true that I don't believe a word Netanyahu says, but there is no personal argument or personal disqualification here. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, here's the thing, too, is that if you're not familiar with Israeli politics, Lieberman and Netanyahu are probably very similar in the way that they want to see politics done in Israel. They're both Especially as it relates to security uh -huh. for the state. They're, Lieberman is opposition government to Netanyahu, but he's actually a conservative. They're both conservative individuals. The problem is, is that Lieberman's a secular conservative, and he's tired of working with all these <laughs> religious people in the government. And who is Netanyahu's entire government? Religious people. So he's saying, get rid of these religious people. In fact, the whole Netanyahu chaos that started five, six years ago started because of this man, Lieberman, because the whole thing came down to the fact that 
Lieberman wants to make sure that the religious are the ultra orthodox are serving in the military. He He's very upset. And by the way, he represents a large portion 100%. of Israelis who agree with him. Hundred percent. And so Lieberman says, if you do not kick these ultra orthodox out and make them serve in the military or change the laws, then guess what's going to happen? I'm I'm going to leave your coalition. And he did. And that's what has sent Netanyahu into a spiral because. Lieberman's party could add a few more seats, which would put him in a much more comfortable position when it comes to governing. But Lieberman, even though he's a conservative ideologically on the same line as Netanyahu, he's on the other side saying, over my dead body, buddy. In fact, I don't even trust you at all. Okay, Remember, one of the Yiddish words we had was fat. Yeah. <laughs> Lieberman says fat. <laughs> exactly. All day long. All right, Steve, we got one more that I thought was very interesting uh, for our people, this comes for, uh, um, from the actually the West Bank, from the uh, from the Palestinian territories. And, and this is China. from the Guardian. This is from the Guardian. And, you know, Chris, we don't hear a lot about Mahmoud Abbas. We don't we know he's in charge. We know he's old. It's, it's fascinating to me. Look, I'm an old guy. Uh, but I'm young compared to we, we got Joe Biden, who's president of the United States. He's 80. We got Mahmoud Abbas, who oversees the Palestinians. He's 84. Yep. We got Donald Trump is we up got in the heights. one of our one of the Republican candidates. He's 76. Yep. Can we get some young people here? <laughs> is there anybody out there who's young, who's competent? I believe there is. It's just interesting. And they're really waiting. The governments around the world are waiting for Mahmoud to pass on because he's the figurehead. He's very important. He was the a direct tie to Yasser Arafat. And so he's important, but at the same time, uh, you know, they're not too sure about him. He's proposing nothing new. No. And I don't think anything new is going to happen. But he is also a placeholder because they're worried if they have elections, the Palestinians will elect in the West Bank, in the Palestinian territories, they'll elect Hamas. Uh, and which, Hamas is not good. So this that, guy is much better than Hamas. And that think about that statement. Yeah. Just that's, <laughs> this guy is pretty good compared to what's out there. That's right. Aye, aye, aye. So he is now kind of symbolically, who knows how much reality is there. He went to China. Chris. Well, yep, he's going to China. He's he's going to China, uh, and it's scheduled to begin on Tuesday. Today, to, we're yep. recording today on a Tuesday. Well, and the the point is, is, he was invited by Xi Jinping to come, which is big. He Very was in, big. He was invited by Xi Jinping because Xi Jinping and and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, they want to be the the um, negotiators between peace between. Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah, they want to replace the U.S. in their place in the place that the Middle East has looked to for so many years. Uh, it says relations between China and Israel are currently cool. The latter is wary of China's economic ties to Iran, and Israel officials have been increasingly frank with Beijing that the country remains closely aligned to the U.S. in foreign policy. So this is a big deal. It's going to be interesting to find out what they talk about when they get together. Well, and it, the big thing about this is that China is trying, now that America has taken a backseat to Middle Eastern policy and Middle Eastern influence by leaving Afghanistan and, and just completely backing out of everything, China has filled the vacuum. And you can see that already because China created that peace deal between the Saudis and Iran. Those are two enemies. It's a Sunni state and a Shia state that completely disagree with one another. In fact, the reason the Saudis and Israelis are friends is because and might create peace is in opposition to Iran. And then China comes in and says, hey, we'll broker a peace deal between the Saudis and Iran. And they do it, which shows their global influence in the region. And now they're they're speaking and saying, we want to create peace between Israel and the Palestinians, which I always think, Steve, this was I'm going to write an editorial about this. Israel has been stuck between global powers for a very long time. They were stuck between the global powers of, of, uh, of Persia and Greece. Uh, they were stuck between the global powers of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. They were stuck between the global powers of Rome when, when, when there was a, a, a lot of political shakeup going on 
in, uh, in, in, in Rome and who was going to be in power. And Herod the Great had to make sure he chose the right one or else it could be his head. And then Israel would suffer as a result. Israel was stuck between the powers of the Muslims and the Crusaders when they were fighting. Um, and so here again, you have to remember Israel, the, the distance between Tel Aviv, or Jerusalem and Washington, D.C. and Jerusalem and Beijing is almost exactly 5,000 miles. They're stuck right in the middle between two world powers that are saying to, to Israel, hey, don't you, don't you go over there. America's already said to Israel, don't go to China. And China's going to begin to influence the region, and they don't want to be left out of those negotiations because China's a rising influence. So it's just creating an interesting conversation. And Mahmoud Abbas, even the Palestinians know, ah, this isn't really to create peace. This is just to make Beijing look good. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting. interesting. Things are kind of mixed up in the Middle <laughs> East. Aren't they? Wait, wait, say that again. Things are kind of mixed up. Mixed up. Chris, the way we even started today, we incorporated in our Bible study, we incorporated a quip. How does that happen? I don't know. It's, uh, I, I don't even know how that happened. Would you say, Steve, Yiddish word of the day, it's a mishmash? It is a mishmash. Uh, no question about it. When I go to the deli, some people get matzo ball soup. Some people get kreplach. I get mishmash. <laughs> Give me the noodles, give me the kreplock, and give me the matzo ball. All Put it one. all together. And what do you have? A great soup. Yeah, that's great. The mishmash soup. So here we are, Chris. Mishmash. Yiddish word. There's mishmash and eschatology. You got this group, this group, that group, believing different things based on the text. And one group's going to be right, or at least partially right. Uh, we believe what we believe, but the point is, there's a mishmash of views, and Israel's got mishmash, China and the U.S. We got mishmash all over Everything's the place. Everything's a mishmash, but you know what isn't mishmash? Jesus and his righteousness. Amen. It's truth, and you know what? We can count on this. Like you said, Steve, he's coming back. So He's we coming look- back. Jesus is, you know, he's seated next to the Father on high, and he says to the Father, look at this mishmash of people. <laughs> we got Jews. We got Gentiles. We got believers. Father, we have them all down there, the mishmash. I'll fix it when I come. I love it. Mishmash to mix up. Oh, I want to go with you to Moishinitzis and get some of that mishmash. Fantastic. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, listen, join us Thursday night for Dr. Mordecai Kadar. You're not going to want to miss him. He's an amazing speaker, a historian, a Bar Ilan University lecturer, the vice president of Newsreel. You want to be a part of that. Chris, what he's forgotten, I want to remember. Okay, well, and that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a great. Uh, 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 a lesson on the Six Day War. Hey, so go to foiequip.org and there you can register. And our phone number uh, for texting. That's right, 424-444-1948. Text us, let us know what you think about the Jew and Gentile podcast. Ay, 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 bye, 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 bye.